No Exit with Nicholas Corice contains explicit language and content. Listener discretion is advised. November 1956, outside of a small town near Harvestine, Pennsylvania. Two hunters, Henry Hotchkiss and Dale Floyd, are hunting for deer on a cold fall morning. Around 8 a.m., Hotchkiss himself fires his gun at an unsuspecting deer and grazes it. When he goes to survey the woods before him to see if he slowed the deer down any, he trips on something and falls. He looks down to see what it is and notices a greasy knot of dirty hair sticking from the forest floor. Grabbing at it, he lifts up the head of Sylvia Spooner, 23. Hotchkiss, confused of what he's seeing at first, gently puts the head down and tells Floyd what he finds. The two immediately leave to drive to the sheriff's department, and an investigation takes place within the hour. The crime scene is marked, photographs and any potential evidence is preserved. Hotchkiss himself seems composed about the whole affair for some time, until it is rumored that he receives word from the local police department during a standard questioning that some of the girl's limbs and skin had been removed in the process of her murder. It is said that from having heard this detail, that Mr. Hotchkiss had taken to drinking. He neglected his work and family life, and was rumored to have never fully come to terms with what he had seen that morning. The police department, however, had their own concerns, as this was the third body of a young woman they found in a similar condition this year. The investigation ongoing, police give sparing details to the press. Amongst themselves, the police refer to these murders as the Doll Parts Murders, and until recently, no new leads in the case have been broken. Outside of town in the woods and rural township of Harvestine, Detective Gabriel Ryan from the larger Metro City Police Department has stopped by into the modest home of Julia Marscaponi, an immigrant who runs a tailor shop in town. He's found himself here based on a hunch that he may have gathered from the recent investigation. Perhaps a woman who knows a thing or two about stitching and tailoring would be able to make sense of these recent ghastly attacks, he figures. Upon entering her home, however, he finds himself in a different sort of debacle. Would you like some more coffee, detective? She asks. Oh, that would be lovely, Miss Julia. Thank you. Detective Ryan's eyes went around the room, admiring all of Miss Julia's needlepoint crafts on the walls. As she poured him a cup of coffee, she leaned over, and he could see straight inside her dress. He looked around the room again to avoid gawking, and smiled at her awkwardly as she rose. Uh, this pumpkin bread is very good, Miss Julia. I do appreciate your hospitality. Also, I wanted to tell you that the chief's wife was very impressed with the work you did on their daughter's wedding dress. I saw it myself. It was indeed lovely. They say you're the best seamstress in town, and I'm <laughs> beginning to see why. Well, thank you, detective, she said to him, then added, see anything else you like? The coffee cup rattled in the dish in his hand, and he steadied himself to put it down. I should really get a move on, Miss Julia, cursing himself for his idiocy. Oh, but wasn't there something you were going to ask me about, detective? He straightened himself up and looked uncomfortable, but this time for a different reason. He thought about the coffee he had just had, the beautiful stitched work sitting in the room, and her red lips, black hair, and everything else. Through all that, he just couldn't seem to bring himself to mention the dead woman he had seen earlier in the week. Uh, you know, it's not important now, Miss Julia. I suppose it can wait. Detective, does this have anything to do with the girl found near that nice farmer's home? Detective Ryan's eyes jumped around in his head, looking at her. Well, yes, as a matter of fact. Uh, goodness, nothing gets past you, Miss Julia. If I knew you weren't so handy with a needle and thread, I'd hand you a badge myself. Detective, can I ask you a serious question? 
Detective Ryan swallowed. Anything you like, Miss Julia. People talk in a small town, Detective. Word gets around fast. Is this something I need to worry about? Being a woman all by my lonesome out here? Do you think it will be safe for me? I can assure you, Miss Julia, that we are doing everything to keep the town safe, he said, feeling the sweat in his palms. I myself have arranged a stakeout tonight, too. She walked closer to him as he spoke, and his mouth became drier. Part of him felt like he was saying too much right now. Keep observations on things going on, naturally. Well, she said, inches from his face, that's what I expect from a man of duty like yourself. I don't want to keep you, Detective. Please be safe out there. Detective Ryan thanked her for her kindness and he felt his way out of the house, nearly knocking over a small table over as she left. She waved goodbye to him from the door like fingers tickling on piano keys as he got in the car and he waved back like a buffoon. He turned on the car, left her house, and got as far as down the street when he exhaled everything in his lungs. He bumped his head on the steering wheel, sending the sound of the horn shooting through the crisp night air. A wave of flush embarrassment had finally caught up to him and he felt it all over. He didn't drink or smoke like the other detectives or policemen back at the station, but he felt like he could sure start doing both right now. But it was more than that. He felt like he knew he just let something slip away there, and it wasn't exactly whatever Miss Julia was attempting to bring to the table there. Julia watched his car as it left her property, then gathered up the used dishes and put them in the sink. She poured about four inches of clear liquor from the cabinet into a glass, then went to the telephone on the wall. She asked the operator for a direct connection to Detective Chief Patterson's office, and he answered almost right away. He's gone, she said. Give me twenty minutes, he said. She hung up, found a cigarette in the kitchen drawer and lit it, and sat down at the kitchen table, waiting. You're late, dandy boy, said Detective Finkins, with half a hamburger wadded up on one side of his mouth. Where you been at? Church run a little late? You have a wild time at communion or something? Detective Ryan sat down in the booth across from him and held up a hand to the waitress to order a coffee. He let Finkins' words roll right over him. He always tried not to respond to any of the stings or barbs dished out by the Harvestine Police Department. No matter what was ever said or done, he would never give them any sort of inkling that it bothered him, even when it did. Some guys were worse than others, though. Thought I had a potential witness, he said. Ran a little long is all. Didn't really get anything I was comfortable with, honestly. Sounds like a hootenanny, Ryan, said Finkins. And what are you comfortable with? Clean socks? Tap water that isn't too cold? We can leave whenever you're ready, said Ryan, sipping the coffee placed in front of him. Give me a minute. We're gonna be out all night. I'm gonna need something to keep my strength up, especially if I have to defend your maidenhood and all. Finkins said this as he took a sip from an egg cream about a foot tall and put out a cigarette with his other hand. Ryan said nothing but watched him as he did this, and made sure to make it obvious that he was looking at Finkin as he ate. Finkin asked him if he was going to order anything else, and Ryan deliberately ignored him. After a moment of more watching the other officer eat, Ryan spoke up and asked him, you know anything about the man we're out for tonight? Finkin shrugged. Local idiot. Said he lived with his mama until he cut her up and Ryan stopped him mid-sentence. Avery Hurst, 28, baby of the family. Two dead brothers from the war. Father was a tobacco farmer who died in a tractor accident when he was 13. Mother, already a tad older when she had him, sewed blankets for the Red Cross before she died of a stroke three years ago. Mm, that's so, said Finkins, jamming another greasy French fry in his mouth. Well, now that's some mighty fine detective work there, Ryan. They teach you that back there in the big city where you got that badge? Tell me this, then. 
This gentleman looks like he comes from such a fine, upstanding family. Then why is it exactly he's been suspected of dumping body parts into a well in the black of night? It's a small town, isn't it? said Ryan. People talk, don't they? Someone sees a man do something out of the ordinary and marks it as suspicious, though it very well could be nothing. If my suspicions are correct, I think you'll be putting all that strength you're gathering into reserve. Finkins eyeballed Ryan as he chewed his burger, then wiped his fingers off with a napkin nearby. Yeah, we'll see who's right, Ryan. I have it under good authority that we might make a clean bust into this case just yet. And I didn't remind you that no one in this town needs your help, Ryan. The state slapped us with you for this, but I'll tell you now that you'd do well to mind your manners and do exactly what it is you need to do tonight to uphold the law. Then you can scuttle on back to that trash pit of yours you call home. Ryan's head was turned towards the window from the booth and said nothing. You listening to me? You ought to be. Ryan's eyes didn't move from the window. He wasn't looking outside of it, but the reflection of Finken in the glass. Ryan watched him as he ate, and he could tell there was something making Finken deliberately uncomfortable right now. And after a moment, Ryan turned to him and said, Well, maybe you ought to finish up so we can go uphold that law. Ryan left two nickels on the tables and made his way back to the car. He leaned up against the side of it and watched the moonlit trees sway in the wind. It felt as if there was going to be a break somewhere in this town tonight, and it might not just be in the case itself. The door clicked open at Miss Julia's home, and the police chief walked in with two other officers. Behind them was a girl, no more than fifteen. She looked confused and somewhat frightened. Julia smashed the cigarette in the ashtray, looked at the chief, and said, You took too long. I'm sorry, Miss Julia. It's just that it was a bit difficult to... He stumbled over his words, and she held up a hand to silence him. He shut himself up on his own. She eyed the four of them. Don't just stand there, boys. Offer the poor girl a seat, why don't you? The men all said nothing at first. Then the chief himself smiled and offered the confused girl a seat on the sofa in the adjoining room. Julia walked over and greeted her with a big smile draped across her face. Hello, dear, Julia said. Sorry about all this. Can I get you something? Tea, maybe? The girl started to speak. She was about to ask what she was doing here, and then Julia interrupted her. Hold on, sweetie. Let me show you a little trick. She took the girl's wrist and felt her pulse. Julia's eyes burned into hers as she counted the rhythm of her heartbeat. The girl began to say something again, then Julia interrupted her once more. There. Do you feel it? Right there. Before the girl could ask what she was supposed to be feeling, her eyes rolled back in her head and she fell unconscious. Julia held her pulse for a moment, then let her wrist down gently to the sofa. Before she turned around, she said to the men, Get down on your fucking knees. All three men got down on Julia's hardwood floor on their knees. She turned around and faced the chief first. Look at her. She looks nothing like me. Red hair, freckles, skinny as a beanpole. Whose girl is this? Frank Dermont's daughter, said one of the men. Julia rolled her eyes. Improper breeding to boot, naturally. Whose decision was this? I'm looking at you, O oh chief of the backwoods police. Is this your decision? Miss Julia, I, I'm sorry. We've been looking for weeks and there just isn't... No, no, no excuses. I will take her, but rest assured this is shoddy, if not lazy work at best. I can only hope the rest of the arrangements you've made tonight are nothing of this caliber of quality. The men were silent. This seemed to enrage Julia even more. Oh, not saying anything, she said. Perhaps you all resent me right now. Think about this. 
you would all do well to remind yourselves of why I ask you to do this, so that I myself may stay away from your own wives, sisters, and daughters. Did you forget? You, Chief, should know the price of this better than any of these men combined. The Chief stayed on his knees and hid a look of disgust and sadness. Hmm, you remember, she said. Well, if that's going to be the case, then I will give you all another gentle reminder. She snapped her fingers and the girl woke up. She was scared now and looked as if she had just woken up from a nightmare. She asked what was going on and Julia ordered the men to hold her down. They scrambled to get her and did just as Julia asked. Julia edged closer to the girl and spoke. Good evening again, child. I am going to take your hair and some of, but not all of your internal organs. I will have them and they will be mine now. You could have slept through this whole thing, but I'm afraid your police friends here have made a lazy, incompetent mistake in your selection, and they must now learn to accept it. Everyone ready? Good. Now stay completely still. Julia spread out her hand and waved it over the girl's mid-torso, and a sorcery that magnified out of Julia's hand made the girl feel like her insides were being squeezed altogether in a knot. The screams rang up through her mouth and pierced through all the men's ears as they struggled to hold her still. Back out on the field, Finken's disgusting onion breath permeated the interior of the car and almost made it hard to concentrate at the task at hand. For the past five hours, he and Finken sat in the car from an unseen part of the road and watched an untouched well sitting on top of a hill. Ryan did most of the watching, of course, as Detective Finken went in and out of sleep. And when he wasn't sleeping, he was reading the newspaper, lighting up cigarette after cigarette, and reading a race form by the moonlight. They hadn't said a word to each other since they got inside the car and discussed where they needed to go. At about 2 a.m., Finkins was sound asleep, passing gas and snoring. Ryan had finally noticed something. A man making his way up to the top of the hill. He thought for a second about waking Finkins up, but decided to wait just a moment more to see what would happen. He lifted his binoculars up to his eyes and saw a tall, bald man in the moonlight. He held nothing in his hands and walked somberly. It was Avery Hurst, to be sure. Ryan had been out to talk to him two weeks ago and recognized the build and the walk. He stopped himself in front of the well and sat there. It looked like he was getting ready to stay for a while. Ryan said nothing at first, then finally decided to awaken Finkins. Hey, he said, shoving him on the arm. Wake up. Look on out. Over there. Finkins bat his eyes awake and yawned, then looked out to the moonlit night, unsure at what he was looking for. This frustrated Ryan. By the well, look, I think it's Avery. Finkins' eyebrows rose. He smacked his lips, still trying to wake himself up. With eyes still half asleep, he produced his gun from his holster and got himself out of the car. It was odd to Ryan that he went straight for his gun before anything else. Hey, Ryan said, what are you doing? There was no plan discussed, or of any kind of communication that was supposed to happen. Finkins ignored him, and instead, Ryan just followed him out over by the tall grass beyond the trees and onto the hill with the well. He tried multiple times to get Finkins' attention and ask him what he was doing, but he ignored everything. Stop right there, Avery! You're under arrest! shouted Finken from below the hill. What? said the bald man, standing bewildered in the moonlight. He had not heard the men coming. Finken ordered him to put his hands up, and he slowly obliged. Finken kept the gun on him and made his way up to the well. He looked inside of it. Ryan, who did not have his gun out, decided to take a more diplomatic approach. Hey, Avery, just relax. Calm down. We're doing an investigation. Everything is all right. 
Vingans tucked his weapon into his belt and took the rope hanging into the old well into his hands and started to pull on it. What's going on? said Avery. Nothing, Avery. We're just on a case. What is it that you're doing out here? Keeping his hands up in the air, the man shook a little. Well, it, it, it's just, it's nothing really. I, I, I scattered Ma's ashes down here at the old well, and, well, sometimes I get lonely and I, I can't sleep, so I come out here and visitors all. Am I, am I in some kind of trouble? No, Avery, you're not in trouble. It's okay. The hell he's not, said Finkins, bringing the bucket up from the old dry well. A wet bag that stink of old meat was tied to the end. Come have a look, Finkins said, untying it. Ryan made his way over and looked at what Finkins was trying to show him. He didn't understand what he was seeing in the moonlight, but then it hit him. This was a bag full of human body parts, and when he saw the nail polish on a cold, limp hand, he realized they were all women's body parts. Good God, said Ryan. What is this? What does it look like? Looks like our local sicko dumped the rest of these lady parts he's been saving here in this bag, and we've caught him red-handed. This is it, Ryan. We finally caught the doll maker killer. Go ahead and radio it in. I'll keep our friend here put. It's about damn time. Ryan saw Avery was just as confused and as frightened as ever. He sweat all over and his shaking had become intense. He looked at Ryan as if to beg him for some sort of rationale in the situation. Ryan shook his head. Finkins, what the hell are you talking about? I saw him, said Finkins, getting the gun from his belt. Dumped the whole bag in here, he did. And now it's about time he gets what the law is going to serve to him. Ryan couldn't believe what he was hearing. No, you didn't see him, said Ryan. And if I wouldn't have woken you up, you would still be asleep. Because if you were awake, you would have seen he wasn't holding anything when he came over here. Are you up to something here, Finken? You and this whole damn department has been acting funny, and you better tell me what's going on. Finkins rolled his eyes. He tried to speak and then lost the words. Finally, he shrugged and said, Look, it's like this. Finkins shot Ryan. He shouted, then slumped over, holding himself. When Avery saw what he had done, he turned to run. Finkins called out to him. Avery, wait, he said. Come back. You don't understand what's going on. Come here, boy. I ain't gonna hurt you. Avery stopped. That's right. It's okay. Come on back. I'll tell you what's really going on. Avery turned around, and then Finken pulled the trigger and shot him three times. Finken waited just a moment, watching him writhe and scream in pain, and eventually expire and die. He wiped his sweating hand with the back of his cuff. He felt for another gun tucked into the holster at his ankle. He wiped it clean with a handkerchief from his pocket and placed it in Avery's dead hand, then walked back to the car. Police radio in hand, Finkins said, This is Detective Finkins. Avery Hurst has been spotting tossing human remains in a well up on Baker's Hill. He shot Detective Ryan dead, and then I shot Avery. Subject is now subdued. Requesting a squad for further investigation. Over and out. Finkins hung up the car radio. He felt around in his jacket pocket for a cigarette and lit one up. He took a long drag off it, exhaled, and then buried his sweating head into his hands. He stayed this way until a shot popped off and a bullet went straight through his head, soiling the inside of the car with blood and killing him instantly. Detective Ryan held himself still. He'd never killed a man before and never would have thought that if he were to kill anyone, it would be a fellow man of the law. He held his bleeding side from where Finkins shot him. The pain was unbearable, but he knew he would have to wait to seek any treatment. He got in the driver's side of the car, sitting in a smattering of human blood, and started the engine. 
He closed the door, put his back up against it, and pushed Finken's dead body out of the side with his feet. It landed in a splat on the asphalt. He leaned over and closed the passenger side door. He knew exactly where he needed to be right now. Julia stitched up the last part of her new scalp with the red hair onto herself and rubbed a teal ointment from an old glass jar on her face. It stung like the fires of hell for a moment that smoothed out the patchwork she just sewn on herself. She looked at herself in the mirror and said, Hmm, red, not bad. She took her old scalp from a dish and slapped it on the skull of the dead girl lying on her bed. Grazie bellissima, she said, and kissed the girl's forehead, which actually used to be her forehead, which was actually some other girl's previous forehead. She shoved her ointment and the rest of her taxidermy tools and potions and salves in the black medical bag, then tipped the kerosene lamp by her bed over, spilling oil and fire all over the bedroom floor. She went outside, walking past her car and straight into the dark woods. She had sent the policemen off long ago and had instructed them not to come back. A car whipped around the road and stopped in her driveway as the flames began to mount. Detective Ryan got out and pointed his gun at her, holding his bleeding side. Stop, he said. Don't go any further. This has gone on long enough. Are you really going to shoot a lady, Detective Ryan? He squeezed the trigger three times and hit her twice in the torso. The bullets hit her like a bag of sand and she made little in the way of reaction from it. His arm flopped to the side, he dropped his gun, and he started to back away from her. She made her way towards him with a smirk on her face. I've never been shot before, detective. There's a first time for everything, I guess. I've been hung, stabbed, burned at the stake. Never ceases to stop me. I guess I'm just a lucky girl. You... You can't keep doing this, said Ryan, backing away from her as she got closer and closer to him. It's... it's wrong. Oh, but I can, and I do, she said, with his back now up against a tree in the yard. The flames from the house started to sputter higher and licked the sky. I say, detective, did anyone ever tell you that you have the most lovely green eyes? Backed into a tree, heart beating, Ryan started to sweat. What? Yes, she said. Oh, I want them so badly. The wise eyes of a detective. I'm going to take them, Ryan, but I'll have you know. The other policemen are dogs. They know nothing, and I tell them what they want to hear. But you, Ryan, I was fond of you. And now I'll have a piece of you everywhere I go. She held up her hand, and an invisible force sucked its way through her palm. Detective Ryan felt a pressure from the back of his skull, and his eyes bulged out. They were sucked out of his eye sockets and propelled themselves into Julia's hand. She held them and watched him slump dead down from the tree. She opened up a dirty jar from her medical bag and carefully placed the two eyes inside, then wiped her hands off on her dress. She grabbed his face, squishing his cheeks between her hand, and whispered to him, And now you walk towards the fire, okay? The corpse nodded and did just as she said rolled itself up from the ground and flop-stepped one leg at a time until it reached the house, then walked right into the flames. He stood in the middle of the roaring fire and burned with the rest of the house. Julia looked at him for a moment, then made her way off into the woods, where she would never be seen by that name by the people of this town ever again. Hello, this is Dolores Pilsner, and you're listening to the Ghosts of True Crimes Past podcast, 
I'm sitting here right now in my car on the outskirts of the small town of Harvestine, Pennsylvania, where only 10 years ago, a woman found with missing limbs came out of the woods. She was found by a local traveler on the interstate and an ambulance was called. She unfortunately died on the way to the hospital that day and gave no account as to what had happened to her. Since then, it's been a confusing and mysterious cold case since it happened 10 years ago in 2004. The case is somewhat famous, as you may have heard of it yourself, but what you don't know is the subsequent murders before that, which were very similar in nature. In fact, looking into the records, it seems that something very closely resembling this seems to happen every 12 to 14 years in the area. A missing woman found stumbling through the woods, missing patches of skin or entire parts of her body, and always seems to die only hours after her discovery. The local Harvestine Police Department has never had a lead as to how these women ended up the way they did. And based on the research that I've done, these types of incidents involving similar women can be found tracing all the way back to the 50s. Is something larger at play here? Or is it simply a string of... Dolores felt a tap on the frosted up window of her car. This startled her because she thought she had been alone on this stretch of highway. She put her recorder aside and hit the button for the window to go down. Outside stood a county police officer in a thick coat. He wore aviator sunglasses and sported a red mustache. Is there a problem, officer? said Dolores. Are you Dolores Pilsner? asked the officer. This caught her off guard. Yes, she said. How did you know that? Your name's been swimming around in the station. Seems you were called in asking to interview any officers who'd be willing to speak with you. Yeah, she said. Is that illegal? What's going on? It ain't illegal, ma'am he said, then he dropped his sunglasses past down his eyes, and added, But I'm telling you now, Miss Pilsner, it would do you a world of good to leave all this well enough alone. What? she said, as he turned his back to her. She asked him what, over and over again, as he got in his car and drove off. He left with so much as not a notice back. She collapsed in her seat and thought to herself, What the fuck was that about? She picked up her recorder again, and was about to reiterate the whole interaction when she saw someone standing off in the woods. It looked like a man in a suit, standing out in the cold forest with his hands in his pockets. He didn't shiver or even seem to breathe, and when she squinted her own eyes to make out his face, he almost looked like he didn't have any eyes in his sockets. But when she blinked, she didn't see him anymore. It was here that the mystery was just starting for her. been listening to The Parts of a Doll, written and performed by myself, Nicholas Corys. Background omens provided by Tabletop Audio. Support them at tabletopaudio.com. End music provided by bensound.com. Follow me on Instagram at nicholasnoexit, all one word. Please drop me a line, send me a message, let me know how I'm doing. You have been listening to No Exit. Nicholas Corys. Good night.